we're in a series talking about inclusion for the last few weeks and, and how we as, as a church need to include people in our lives and, and not just other believers because I know I love hanging around believers, but, but we as a church, we need to hang around unbelievers too because it's scriptural, amen? Because we shouldn't just keep it to ourselves. If you've got good news, you shouldn't just keep that good news to yourself. You should tell other people about the good news because by telling other people about the good news, you can get them in on the good news, share the good news, amen? We should always share the good news. And you know, the thing about it is that we are surrounded by others here in Enniscorty. You don't have to, you know, travel a distance to find someone who's not in a relationship with Jesus. You just got to travel outside your front door. Because we are surrounded by others. We're surrounded by people who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. In the book of Luke, Jesus was preparing his followers to go out before him to announce that he was going to be coming their way. And here's what he said in, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. He said, the words of Jesus, he said, The harvest is truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. I love the way the easy-to-read version, and I, I, anything that's easy to read, I like. Amen? So I love the way the easy-to-read version translates this verse. It says, there is such a big harvest of people to bring in. Just in case you thought the harvest was corn, just because that's what we're doing at the moment, doing a lot of harvesting. It says there's such a big harvest of people to bring in, but there are only a few workers to help harvest them. God owns the harvest. That's good to know, amen? It's God's harvest, amen? God owns the harvest. So here's what he said to do. He said, ask him to send more workers to help him bring in his harvest. Church, the harvest is plentiful. We're surrounded by harvest. I mean, at home, in our home, we're surrounded by fields with corn in them at the moment. And at this time of the year, we're dreading it because the corn in our field, it gives us a, it's beautiful. It, it looks absolutely amazing. It's all lovely golden brown now, and it just looks so country. It looks so lovely. But in the last few days, we've seen combines going around. And you know what the combines do? The combines go in and they pull up our lovely corn. And what do we end up with? A field full of stubble. But you know what? The whole idea of having corn in the field is that you can harvest it. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that the world is God's harvest field. And those harvest fields in the world, they are full of ripe corn. And he's saying that there is not nearly enough who go into the field to harvest that corn. And you know what the worst thing for any farmer could be is not being able to harvest his crop. To see it go moldy, go off, and it's become just useless, something that he just eventually has to plow up. And God is saying that the harvest field that we live in, Enniscorthy, County Wexford, Ireland, this harvest field that we live in, he said it is immense. And it is ripe for the harvest. And he is saying, but the unfortunate thing about that is there are not that many harvesters. There is not that many people who include other people in their lives. And this is what we've been talking about, inclusion. 
And he said, pray the Lord of the harvest, the one who owns the harvest, to send more laborers into the field. Amen? The Lord of the harvest. Has anybody here in church this morning got a nickname? And I don't want you to shout it out, but just think to yourself, do you have a nickname? Do you have a name that somebody or other people know you by? Now, not derogatory, of course. You know, we've all been called names in the past. But a nickname, kind of a, a term of endurement name, a name that some people use. Look, at home, you know, we got two girls, Emma and Rebecca. But we never call them Emma and Rebecca. We call them Emma and Beck. That's just the way it's always been, ever since they were born. I don't know why we even christened them Emma and Rebecca, because it's always been M and always been Beck. And other people know them by M and Beck. Most people will call them M and Beck. It's a nickname. Does anybody have a nickname? Okay. Let me just say, around the world, us Irish, we're known as Paddies. And when people call us Paddies, they don't call us Paddies as, as an insult. I don't believe. It's a term of endearment because we're nice people. We're lovely people. We, we don't go and wreck places. The Paddies are in town. It's a, it's a nice thing. Okay? Some very famous nicknames down through the years. Ivan the Terrible. Anybody ever heard of Ivan the Terrible? Do you know he didn't get that nickname because he was a nice guy? He got that nickname because he was Terrible. Jack the Ripper. Vlad the Impaler. What was his favorite pastime? Impaling people. He used to get a big rod and skewer people. There was Dr. Death. He didn't bring life anywhere he went, did he? Amen. Some boxers. Anybody here watch boxing? Anybody like boxing? Boxers always get nicknames, don't they? What was a few of the famous ones? Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Why? Good. Amen. Iron Mike Tyson. Because he was hard as nails. And listen, the list could go on and on. But they got their nicknames because it had something to do with their character, yeah? Their nickname reflected something to do with their character. Billy Graham was known as America's pastor. Probably could have called him the pastor for the world in his day. I have a friend that everybody that, that was in our friend group at the time called him Riggs. That was just his name. Now, my brother-in-law has a dog called Riggs for a completely different reason, but my friend was called Riggs. If I met him today, and I haven't seen him in years, I'd say, how are you, Riggs? How are you getting on? Even though that's not his name. Amen? We just call him that because it's, it's a name that stuck with him down through the years. I have another friend. We all, everybody, everybody calls Murph. Second name happens to be Murphy, but we shortened it to Murph. It's his nickname. It's, it's not meant to be insulting. It's just something that we call him. Another friend of ours, everybody calls him and his family Bowler. Now, I don't know where that came from. I didn't ask. We just call him that. Still call him that today, even though I only see him maybe once every three years, but it's always, how's things Bowler? Know his first name, but, you know, nobody calls him by their first name. Nicknames are names that people put on people to describe their character better. We have another guy, and there are two more. Just give me, give me a minute, two more. We've got another guy that I, that I used to work with for years, and we used to call him Heavyhead. It was just a name. He had a big head, but we just call him Heavyhead. 
We had another guy, last one, seriously, last one. We called Willie the Shoe. His name was Willie, and one day, he, he got this name, because one day he came into work with two odd shoes on. So he was always known, for years that I knew him, as Willie the Shoe. He's moved to Limerick now. Don't know whether that's nothing to do with the fact that he wore odd shoes or not. But Jesus was famous for reaching out to others. He was famous for it. And because of his fame in reaching out to others, Jesus gained the nickname Friend of Sinners. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, Jesus hung out with the very people that nobody else was hanging out with. Friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. That's who Jesus hung out with. And because of Jesus' example, he said, we are to go and do as he did. Amen? We're to do everything apart from sinning. Amen? To reach the lost. Paul got it. He understood it. 1 Corinthians 19 verse 20. Here's what Paul said. This is Paul's statement. This is a statement that I, I took to heart years ago. Here's what Paul said. He said, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. So basically, when Paul was hanging around Jews, he went on like the Jews went on. Because he knew that if I'm ever to reach Jews, they want to see me being a Jew. So that's what he did. He said to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. So to the religious Jews, Paul became the best religious Jew that he could be. Why? Because he wanted to win the religious Jews. Okay? Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having a law. So those who weren't under the law, the Gentiles, Paul became as a Gentile. He didn't go in to meet with the Gentiles with all of his Jewish gear, his phylacteries and his prayers and all of that. He didn't. He, he went in there as a normal guy to meet with the, with, with the non-Jews, the Gentiles, because he knew that if he was to go meet with these guys in all of his gear, they'd reject him straight away. Why did he do that? So he could win Gentiles. Amen? Verse 22, to the weak he became weak to win the weak. He said, and this is, this is, this is my statement, I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that I might win some. That means I don't go in there as I feel comfortable and I don't go in there and preach to them something that's comfortable to me. He says, I go in there and I meet them as they are. What Paul said, I come down to their level. Amen. I mean, if I like classical music and they come to visit me, I don't play classical music to them if they don't like it. Paul is saying, you know what? If they don't like doing this, I don't do it. If this is something that's not cultural for them, I don't force my culture on them. Amen? 
I've been in many churches down through the years as a believer where I myself didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel welcome. Why? Because it really didn't relate to me. It was so religious. Nearly 30 years ago, I ran out of religion because religion didn't do anything for me. Didn't point me to the Savior, so I ran out of religion, but even today, I could go into some Christian churches in this world and I run out of them because it doesn't, it doesn't minister to me. Amen? Paul says that we are to become all things to all people so that we may win some. So that says to me in the church that the church is meant to be a church where everyone is welcome. Black, white, Irish, British, South African, no matter whatever country they may be from, east or west, north or south, they're meant to be welcome. Whether they like Manchester United or Arsenal, they're still meant to be made welcome. Amen? Even if they're English, we're meant to make them feel welcome. Praise God. We love the English most of the time. But here's the thing. I've worked so closely with people for years. We've worked side by side as staff in the same company for years. And we've had great crack. We've got on well. We've, we've communicated together, laughed at the same jokes, done the same things for years. And then they decide they want to join management. And I've seen it time and time again. People that I've worked for years with become in management. And all of a sudden, overnight they change. Within days, you, you crack the same joke to them that they laughed at a week ago and all of a sudden now it's not funny anymore. You try to do the same things that you used to do with them for years and all of a sudden they don't participate. They don't want to talk to you. don't want to hang out with you. don't want to eat lunch with you. I mean, we had, where I worked, we had a management table. I mean, talk about division. And I've seen people that I worked with for years sat with, at lunch with for years, when they became management, they moved over to the management table. Jesus is the Son of God. He was there when God created the universe. But yet Jesus makes room for the one that no one cares for. Jesus sat down with the prostitute in the dirt. Amen. He went into the home of the tax collector. Caused the chaos down out of a tree. Jesus cares about the ones that nobody else cares about. Because Jesus' mission in his life was to include others. Amen? And that's our mission. We are called to be inclusive of others. Paul said he was willing to become all things to all people, short of sinning, so that he might lead others to salvation. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to save others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We are to use whatever gift God has given us to bring others into the kingdom of God. 
In the book of Jude, it's just one book. It says there in verse 23, it says a commandment to you and I to save others by snatching them out of the fire. I want to talk to you for just a couple minutes this morning about the job of a firefighter. The news this week, you've, you've seen like I've seen and everybody else has seen the absolute devastation that fires bring. We've seen absolutely amazing forest fires go, uh, across Portugal and Spain and France. And we're seeing the huge devastation that these forest fires have brought. Loss of property, loss of homes and land and, and the loss of life. I think they said over a thousand people alone in Portugal in the last couple of weeks have been killed in, in these fires. But thank God for firefighters. Firefighters are amazing people, aren't they? They are absolutely amazing people. You know, last Tuesday, they said that in London was the busiest day for firefighters since the end of the Second World War. Isn't that amazing? Since the end of the Second World War, it was their busiest day. And my brother, he lives in London, and this, that big fire that you all seen in the news, he sent me a picture from his back garden of that because it was only kind of like a mile and a half away. Started in the back garden in a grass fire. I think it consumed a dozen houses or something like that. But it was the busiest day London firefighters have had since the end of the Second World War. I have a friend who's a fireman, and a while ago I asked him to try and explain his job a little bit better to the layman. And, and he sent me the fireman's oath of office. It's like this. When you become a fireman, you stand up and you, and you, you solemnly swear to do the duties of a firefighter for your city to the best of your ability. To serve your, your commanding officers with respect and dignity. To serve the, cities, or the citizens of this city with compassion and courage and, and integrity. So help me God. In the fireman's oath of office, he promises to do whatever he can to save people from dying in a fire. Isn't that amazing? I asked my uh, friend to explain a little bit further the main duties of a fireman. And he said... In the simplest form, he said, I would sum it up as rescuing people and saving lives. He said, it's putting out fires, but it's so much more than that, he said. We respond to vehicle accidents and medical emergencies as well as fires. But he said, and this is great now, he said, preparation is critical. He said that they have to continue to go to school to learn how to better themselves so that they're equipped to be able to handle emergencies as they come up. He said, we try to be as safe as possible. See the way to put that word in there? We try to be as safe as possible. He said, but they always weigh risk-reward. Get this. It's hard to believe that, that someone have this kind of mentality, but he said, if losing one firefighter meant saving hundreds of lives, then it might be worth the sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Imagine taking on a job. Taking on a job that helps others to the point that you may lose your own life. That's absolutely amazing. It's amazing to me that a firefighter will put his life on the line in order to save angels. Because people will risk their life for their family. That's natural. 
they'll do that. You got a kid drowning or whatever, you, you'll risk your own life to save him. You got family members in a burning house, you will risk your own life to save him. But a, a firefighter will risk their own lives to save a stranger. He said a job has long hours and it can be damaging emotionally and physically, but it's also so rewarding. And I just thought, doesn't that sum up the church so well? Doesn't that sum up what we're meant to do as a church? We're meant to rescue others. We're meant to make room for others. Make a space for them here. The Word of God calls us God's firemen. And that's our job, according to, to Jude 23. We are to pull people out of the fire. We are commissioned by God to rescue and save lives. And our preparation is critical. That's why we meet here on a Sunday. Because every time we come on a Sunday, we're preparing ourselves to go back out there, back into the world again, to be ready to rescue people again. And we try, we absolutely do, we try to be as safe as possible. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Because sometimes when it comes to rescuing people, we, we have to put our own reputation on the line, don't we? But we weigh up that risk factor there. The rejection versus maybe the acceptance. Because we know that in order to save someone's eternity, we've got to be willing to pull it on the line. Amen? The job is hard. It's emotionally and physically hard. But when you pull someone from a fire and see them turn their lives over to Jesus, it's so rewarding. Amen? Church, just because the job is hard, doesn't mean that we don't have to do it. Isn't that true? We can't ignore it. We can't ignore the commission that we've been given. Because ignoring stuff doesn't make it go away, does it? I mean, I know first hand ignoring the back garden doesn't cut itself. Amen? Hedges don't cut themselves. Grass don't cut themselves. Truthfully, I was really enjoying that dry spell for the last three weeks hoping and praying virtually on my knees that the grass would burn up. I love dry grass. You don't have to cut it as often. Amen? Cut the stuff every week. I mean, come on, give me a break. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians, they just ignore the Great Commission. Amen? A lot of Christians, they love their church so much that they don't want to bring others in to mess it up. That's the truth. They love their church so much that, you know what, if, if, if messy people from the community started to come in here, I mean, you know, it would unbalance the church and, and you know, make things a little bit more awkward and more difficult. And, and you know, I don't really like that person anyway. And, I, you know, I'd rather they, you know, it doesn't matter. All to do, amen. Amen? We're called to bring in people that otherwise we may not want. Amen? Messy people. You see, some people think it's someone else's job to save the lost, but it's not. It's all of our jobs. Amen? Mark 16, verse 15 said, And Jesus said to us, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Tell everybody, everywhere, the good news about Jesus. What's the good news? God sent His Son Jesus to pay the price for our sins. And because of his sacrifice, God is not angry with us anymore. That's good news. Amen? I think for a lot of, for, for many years, Christians, 
they, they don't want to evangelize because they think evangelism is They think that, you know what, if I go and tell someone, you know, what's going to happen to them, they could knock me out. But you don't have to do that, do you? Go tell them the good news. But a lot of Christians have reversed it. They've, they, they've gone into situations to tell people the bad news. They've stood on soapboxes and they've stood on street corners and, and, and they've handed out tracts that tell nothing but bad news. They're telling people, you're a low-down, dirty sinner and you're going to hell. Well, I've never yet met a low-down, dirty sinner that didn't know that they were a low-down, dirty sinner going to hell. I mean, they know that already. So don't waste the ink. Don't waste the breath. Don't waste the chance of getting hit. Go out there and tell them the good news. Jesus didn't tell us. He didn't commission us to go and tell them how bad they were because they already know where to go and tell them that because of what Jesus did for them, God's no longer holding their sin against them anymore and that receiving Him and confessing Him brings them salvation. That's good news. Amen? Praise God. There's so much that we can learn from firemen and their commitment to saving people's lives. A fireman is willing to put his life on the line in order to save others. And sometimes us Christians, we won't put our own reputation on the line because we're afraid of what people will think of us. No fireman would ever just stand looking at a person as they perished in a fire. They would do everything in their power to try and save them. Or would they ignore any call from help from any person? We in the church, we need to develop that attitude. Amen? That they are, if they were worth Jesus shedding his blood for them, they are worth us telling them the good news. Amen? We need to build a church that has place and room and space for everyone who's not here yet. Everyone in our community. We need to treat the lost with compassion and we need to make room for them here in our church. You know, when the good Samaritan reached the injured man on the side of the road, you know that that man had already been ignored by the priest and the Levite? Didn't want to know him? Priest, and he came down along the road, he, he went over to the side of the road for a look. He had, a, he had to have a look. And when he seen what was there and the condition that your man was in, he just decided, now we're the hassle. Crossed back over to the other side of the road, went on. The, the, the Levite, he done the very same. Came on the scene, seen the, the state of the man. And he, he again weighed up and he probably thought, you know, I'm a bit of a rush, you know, I have a meeting on today and, you know, don't look great anyway. Ah, he'd be grand, I'll, I'll keep on going. Now Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's exactly what the Good Samaritan did. Because when he came on the scene, he got down off his horse and he went over and he seen the man in the distressed state. He saw the same picture as the priest and the Levite, the religious people. He saw the same picture. An actual fact, he probably saw a little bit later in the day, so it may actually be in even a worse state. But when he saw that picture of that man, he got off his horse. He went over to him. He gave him first aid on the side of the road. He used his own first aid kit. He put his own cloak on him. He put him on his own horse, brought him to the inn, and he used his own money said to the innkeeper, you know what? Whatever it costs, I'll pay it. And this guy was a Samaritan, hated by the Jews. 
If anybody would have had license to walk past the man in the ditch, it was the good Samaritan. Because he went out of his way to help somebody who more than likely would not have gone out of their way to help him. And when we go into our community to, to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, when we do summer camps and stuff like that, we do it because we're commissioned to do it. And we do it not because maybe the community is nuts about us or whatever. We do it because we want to be the good Samaritan in our town. Amen? We want to reach out to these people in our town. The Bible asks the question, who is your neighbor? That's a great question, isn't it? You know, your neighbor is the one who helps you when you have need of rescue. We are to rescue people in our community. And in order to do that, we've got to get involved. Amen? Got to get involved. Not, we can't sit back for years and years and years and weeks and weeks and weeks just looking at the lost in our community, complaining about the lost, giving out about the lost, and then not getting involved in our community. Got to get involved. There's no point in coming to church and praying for the lost, singing songs about bringing in the lost, asking God for, to send a revival so that the lost will all be saved and, and God will bring them all in here, but we won't have to do anything. God said we were to go and bring him in. And while we're bringing him in, we're to ask him for help in bringing him in. Amen? But we got to be harvest-minded people. Thank God for the Good Samaritan. He came on the scene and he got involved and he helped that man get back on his feet again. And to help him, he had to get involved. And to help our community, we got to get involved with them too. One last scripture this morning. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Because sometimes we, we think that, that we got to do this on our own. When we go out to evangelize and when we talk to people about Jesus, that we're doing it on our own. But, but, but here's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says. It says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We don't do this on our own. This is not just a mission that we're taking up on our own. We're, we're taking it upon our own backs. That we want to go and we want to build the church. We want to build the community. No, we, we, we are taking up this commission from God to go into our community to, to bring the lost in. And, and the Word of God says if we do that, we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. Amen?